Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke 16, where we find the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We've been going through a series of pre- in our preaching, um, studying the parables of Jesus. What is a parable? Well, it's a story in which is hidden some sort of moral or lesson. Pastor Bailey's been saying that it's hi Terry, that it's uh, it's it's a story that packs a punch, a wallop, and and it's sort of like you could think of it as like Aesop's fables. Jesus had a form of teaching that was like Aesop's form of teaching. A little story that taught a lesson. But in the case of Jesus, unlike with Aesop, they're not platitudes. They are in deeply wise. They, most importantly though, cut to the heart. They don't just entertain your mind. They come with the full knowledge and understanding that God has of the secrets of your heart. And they cut right to the dividing line between soul and spirit. And so Jesus does this this morning in this parable. There are some who think that this is not actually a parable, but more like a true history. It's not to say, um, well, I think the reason they say that is because it seems to, to stray, if you're thinking of it from a parable, it strays closely to reality. These are it, it names names. It's, it's unusual in a parable. It has names of particular people. And so there's good reason to think that, or to, to think about whether it's a real story, real people, a real history, or if it's a made-up story. I think it's a made-up story. I think there's simple reasons to think that. We'll get into it. But regardless, it doesn't in any way alleviate the truth of the parable, just like any of the other parables of Jesus, are absolutely true in the spiritual realities that they are teaching about. The reason that this parable comes so close to reality, though, and is unusual in that regard, is that Christ is engaged here in a very intense conflict with the Pharisees. He's been teaching them about wealth, about the dangers of wealth, about how to use wealth. And he ends an earlier parable with that wonderful statement of his, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, how do the Pharisees respond to this teaching? Well, Pharisees, it says, who loved money, who trusted in wealth, they sneered at him. That's what one translation says. They sneered at him. How does Jesus respond to people sneering at him? Well, when it's important for his work as the Messiah, in terms of laying down his life, he's like a lamb who's led to slaughter, who's silent, right? There's times when Jesus is silent. There's other times when Jesus sharpens his sword and gets even more precise, takes the gloves off. And that's what he does here in this parable. He's, he's taught a parable. He's gave them the application, they sneered, so he gives them another parable, which is close to the bone. Let's stand now in honor of God's word as we read it together. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. 
Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This parable has a three-part structure to it. This is the three headings of this sermon. In the first place, we're introduced to two contrasted men, very disparate lives. One as spectacularly, spectacularly rich as the other is poor. In the second place, we see these men who, uh, who were so radically unequal in their life, they come together in the common end. They meet the same end. They both die. All flesh is grass, says the prophet, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people, the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked, the rich and the poor, are like grass. And in the third place we see these men contrasted again, this time in the afterlife, but now with a surprising reversal of fortune. The rich man who enjoyed a life of pleasure on earth comes now to be tormented eternally in hell. And the man who suffered so greatly in his temporal life enjoys unending pleasure in heaven. So if we were to graph this on a chart, we could just make an X out of the parable. It's two men who are, who are different from one another. Rank, this one ranks higher than the other. They meet the same end and cross paths on their journey in very different directions. So, we're introduced first to a rich man with a description of his opulence, his luxury, his extravagance. We're told in verse 19 that he habitually dressed in purple. 
That's the most dignified, the most respectable color in, their, in those days. If you are a man who wants to signal your own importance, you will wear purple. And also underneath that, he would wear um, fine linen, probably made from Egypt, uncommonly expensive fabric. In other words, he, was, he dressed to the nines. This was his habit. We're also told that he was joyously living in splendor every day. And this is a less specific translation than others have chosen. Most translations say that he feasted sumptuously every day. There's a strong connection in the Greek here to feasting, to eating. It, it, it talk, this refers to his diet, his habits at table. This man ate at talent, Joni. Joni's been kind to send me to restaurant talent once or twice maybe even as a gift. Have you, do you guys know this restaurant downtown? You've arrived if you've been there. But everything about it lets you know. Well, he, his habit was to dine at talent every evening with an $80 bottle of wine, steamed mussels, or whatever his heart's desired, or whatever, you know, he, he might even order off the menu. He had that close relationship with the chef that, that connoisseurs develop with their favorite establishment. When it came to the basic necessities of life, food, shelter, and clothing, not only could this man afford to meet these needs for himself, but he could afford to indulge his every appetite. He pampered himself. He didn't just have a bed. He had a sleep number bed. With a thousand thread count sheets. He didn't just have a razor. No, no, no. He had a ram's horn handle straight razor from the art of shaving in New York. By the way, if you want to get a good insight into our culture, visit the Art of Shaving website and follow the link to the, like, the grooming ritual or something. The, every man's grooming ritual. I, th- I, th- I made it far enough along to th- I think it's safe. <laughs> but man, is it horrifying as a comment on our nation and our interests, our appetites, how rich we are, how much like this man we are. He didn't just have a chair, he had an Ames chair. And this way of living brought him much happiness. They say that money, it says he joyously lived, joyously lived in splendor every day. They say that money doesn't buy happiness. Well, Jesus says otherwise. At least in this life, money can afford you a great degree of joy. How does it do that? Well, it insulates you from suffering. And if you have enough money, the more insulated you can be. You can live in the safe part of town. Your, your children can, can go to the good school because you're in the good school district. Or they can go to the private school. They can go to the school that has guards and gates and whatever. They, they can go to the school where they're going to be educated in such a way that they will never have to associate themselves with humble people. 
they can, get a, they can go to Princeton, they can get a job at NPR, and they can talk about evangelicals and <laughs> never have met one. Born agains. Now, you might think, since you get the idea that this is the bad guy in the story, that he's so ostentatious, he's so over the top, that I'm safe. Surely I'm safe. Because look at me, I only make 30 grand a year. I'm I'm on the lowest tier of Obamacare. I'm entirely subsidized, or whatever. And you think, that's not me. But listen, folks, we're Americans. They don't let you be poor in America. You can only be rich in America. And what we're going to learn is this. Though it's not a hopeless case to be American, it is a dangerous place to be. Meanwhile, at this rich man's gate, there lay a poor man. We saw that the rich man was clothed in the finest clothes, and the poor man is covered in sores. That's the contrast here. These sores were festering boils like Job's. And like Job, who in all his trials, it says, did not sin with his lips, we have no indication here of any complaint from this man. No judgment of God. No shaking his fist to heaven. He's patient in suffering. Furthermore, it seems that he was lame because it says that he was laid at the rich man's gate, which indicates that he must have been carried there by his friends. There's, There's a number of accounts in the New Testament where we see this happening that the friends of a poor man or a lame, a, a lame man who um, couldn't work for his food, they would carry him out of their love for him to a place that was convenient for him to, to catch a few rich people as they passed by and hopefully get a few coins to feed himself. Now, did, was he there demanding admittance to the house? By the way, I forgot to mention, this, this rich man had a gate. And this is not just a gated community gate. This is like indicates that his house was like a palace. It was like a city unto itself. That's the, that's the meaning of the word gate here. And I don't know why I brought that up. There you go. Was he demanding entrance to the gate? There's a party inside, joyous living every day. Was he there insisting on his rights? No, he was merely longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, verse 21. Apparently, it was the custom in those days at feasts, which were common in this man's house every day, it seems. At these feasts, instead of having utensils or napkins, they would have bread. Bread would serve as both parts of their tools in this meal. I I ate at a restaurant called Jaffa in Manchester, England, when I studied there. It was my favorite restaurant, and they'd have lamb shawarma and hummus and that little Middle Eastern salad thing that I can never, uh, baba ganoush. 
And, and there was no utensils. There'd just be like pita bread on the side, and you'd take off a piece of pita bread, and you'd just pick up whatever you wanted. They also would use it as a napkin. They'd wipe their faces, and then when they're done, they'd throw it under the table for the dogs. Food that it wouldn't even cross their mind. You know, they just soiled it with their germs. This is not food for a man. And yet we see that this is all Lazarus is hoping for. It's the best he assumes he can get. And it's what he hopes for. He's not there demanding free health care. I looked at Brian because I figured he'd laugh. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. He's not there engaging in a demonstration against the 1%. Which is what we do when we think we're poor. (laughs) He's there out of genuine need. He has nothing and no ability to provide it for himself. And he's content to receive the dregs. You know, the, the nasty stuff at the bottom of your coffee cup, if you make French press coffee like me, because I'm rich and I can indulge in those kinds of things. That's, that would satisfy him for his morning cup of coffee, if he could get it. He would content himself with a dog's meal. And so what does this teach us about the man? Well, it teaches us that he thought of himself no more highly than a dog. Now, in America, everyone agrees that our sense of self is crucial, is vital for securing happiness uh, in this life and if you believe in such things in the life to come. Everyone agrees that your perception of yourself is key to securing happiness. What we don't agree on is what that sense of self ought to be. We don't agree on it in the church. Though scripture is clear, we're confused. The world tells us that we must have self-what? Esteem, self-esteem. Self-loathing? No. Self-abasement? No. Self-abhorrence? No. These ideas are thought to be the greatest threats to human happiness. What we're called to do is what every Disney movie preaches, the heart, the, the, the moral message of every Disney movie is what? Believe, children, believe in yourself. Little girl, More and more. Little girl, that's the message of every Disney movie. Little girl, believe in yourself. And this idea is even advanced by leaders in the church. Some as trusted as Dr. Dobson. Repeatedly in his books, he says things like this. The health of an entire society depends on the ease with which its individual members can gain personal acceptance. So the message of this is clear, that the greatest evil, the greatest problem in our world today is low sense of self-worth. The greatest message of hope, the greatest advance we can make, what our work needs to focus on, is getting people access, making it as easy as possible 
for people to achieve a sense of their own self-worth, self-affirmation. Now, this is a gospel. This is, there's a problem and a solution. That's a gospel. But it is a false gospel. Jesus did not say that he who would come after me must learn to first accept himself and then pick up his sense of self-worth daily and follow me. This is not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said he would, who would come after me must deny himself, must be self-effacing, must abhor himself. He must deny himself and take up his, his cross, his instrument his, of, of torture, his symbol of great shame and self-sacrifice and horror and follow him. It is impossible to maintain a high view of God and a high view of yourself. These, and if you do not have a high view of God, then you do not know him. Isaiah, in, in chapter 6, came before God and he saw him high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling his temple. And what did he say? Woe is me. I am undone. Though you made me, Lord, to bear your image, this is the words of the psalmist, I am a worm and not a man. God made us to bear his image, to have a noble character in ourselves. And the first thing you have to do, having lost that, having had Satan twist and corrupt that, image of God that he stamped in you, it's now, a, it's, it's like, it's twisted, it's corrupt. What's a good word for it, Josh? It's like, it's just gone, all but gone in you. First thing you have to do in order to see it restored is acknowledge that you are not what God made you to be. You are a worm and not a man. I am no longer worthy to be called your son is the first step of coming and being reconciled to God. The poor man was not just poor in material goods, but more importantly, and to his credit, it seems he was poor in spirit. He was patient when wronged. He wasn't shaking his fist either at heaven or at the rich man. He just longed. For food. And he would be content if he received a dog's meal. And now we see the dogs enter the story. We're told that they were coming and licking his sores. Why were they doing this? Have you heard of canine empathy? You dog lovers out there? Psychologists have have seen in, in canines what they call canine empathy. You can probably get a PhD in it. And it's, you've, you've probably seen it if you've been around dogs. They show for their masters or for sometimes just for 
hurt suffering individuals in general a kind of they're sort of sorry for you. They, don't, may, under, they may not understand why. It's like instinctual in, in dogs. But they just kind of show you that they care. They might come and snuggle up with you. If you have an open wound, they might start licking it. It's what they do for themselves when they've got a wound, and, it, and that's what helps. And so they, they might lick yours. And so why are they in the story? Apart from us getting even more sympathy for the man. Because here he has dogs being his doctors. Well, they're there be, as a condemnation, as an accusation against the rich man, against, and therefore against the Pharisees who sneered at Jesus, showing that these Pharisees, that, that this rich man, in his callousness towards the poor man, is lower than a dog. He will not even be as good as a dog. Where's your concern for the poor? Where is it? And I've just got done saying that you can't be poor in America, so good. Who are the poor in America? Well, they're the ones upon which our two-income households, our two-income society, our economy is built. The ones that facilitate, make it possible for the mothers to go out and work. So that your two incomes, can, can sati- you can use the money that you earn to satisfy your pleasures, to pursue vanity. They are, of course, those who are not born because they're murdered. Because, of course, if a mother gives her womb to bearing babies, if a, if a, if a family gives their home to children... then you can't have as much, right? Haven't you found that to be true? Where is your love for the poor? There are a number of subtle literary elements. This is a piece of literature. It's actually a masterpiece of literature, this parable. Jesus is an incredible storyteller. And there are a lot of subtle elements or uh, indicators of the spiritual state of these men, but there is one obvious one. There is an inequality or a counter-inequality. So I've said there's a rich man and a poor man, but there's something that even here in the first part of the story completely flips them and shows you that the poor man is rich and the rich man poor. What is it? The poor man has something, the rich man doesn't. He has a name. Did you see that? His name is Lazarus. Jesus names it. He owns it. He shows that he knows this man. Whereas the rich man, he just calls a certain rich man, which, if so far as you can believe, Greek scholars, I don't know how far that is. Maybe Josh can look this up, but... At least one of them thought that this may actually be a dismissive term or have a dismissive connotation, almost like saying a certain rich nobody. Jesus won't even name his name. A certain rich nobody and a, and a poor man named Lazarus. Now why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it shows that Jesus 
not, that Lazarus is not, in fact, a faceless man and, and nameless, faceless, unknown man in the great sea of humanity. But rather, he is someone very precious to our Lord. Someone who he keeps track of. Someone whose name, in fact, is written in his book, his book of life. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, Paul says, If anyone loves God, he is known by him. We did not love him, but he loved us first. We would not love him still. However the song goes that we sing, it's based on scripture. If anyone loves God, he, he, lo and behold, he finds out that God loved him first. God knew him, chose him, gave him a name, remembered that name and tracked it in a book. In Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, we see that nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the kingdom of heaven, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so right there, we see that Lazarus is rich, 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 filthy, stinking rich. Because he's clean, he does not practice abomination or lying, and he has a place in heaven. And what name does Jesus give this pitiful man? He names him Lazarus, which is short for Eleazar, which means God helps. So not only did he own his name in the story, but he assigns him a name, which is an emblem of his own commitment to the man. God helps. Do not go around assuming that God is angry with you or others just because you suffer. I, I hear this. I hear, I, I, sometimes I catch it in my own speech. We blame this or that on the devil. We complain. We look down on people who are suffering. We think, well, who sinned? He or his parents? This is our way of thinking as worldlings. Jesus and the scriptures will not allow us to do that. Rather, we should think of the sufferings that we endure in this life as gifts that come to us from our Father. Consider these words from the Apostle Peter. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, you've been laid at the gate with sores, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are intended by God for testing our faith, showing it to be more precious than gold, and resulting in praise and glory and honor at the last. And also, don't go around assuming that when you have material blessings in your life, when God is just, you know, pouring it out on you, don't take any confidence in that. That don't mean squat, according to Scripture. Because 
Time and again, like in Psalm 73, we see that wealth puts a man on a slippery slope. You remember that passage, Psalm 73? The psalmist is about to lose heart because he's looking around and he's seeing the, the, the arrogant and the wicked and he sees how rich they are and how fat they are and how they can run their mouth off and no, no consequences. They have no troubles in their death. And he had almost lost faith until he came into the house of God. And there he perceived their end. And he said, surely, O Lord, you have put their feet in slippery paths. Now, wealth is is not a guarantee that it's hopeless for you. (laughs) But it it is a slippery path. Wealth is a slippery path. And that's because, why? Because we corrupt it. It's one of the things we can most easily corrupt and abuse and that can lead us astray. Wealth is so dangerous. Brothers, if you're poor and suffering, take heart. Remember that Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Let's move on, and and at, at the next section, we see that these two men are alike in their death. They sort of come together for a moment. They meet a common end. I won't spend too much time on this, but it is worth noting that both the righteous and the unrighteous die. Every one of you will die. Why? Where does death come from? Well, death extends to us from our father Adam. God told Adam that in the day that he ate the fruit, he would die. He ate, and that same day, the principle of death was introduced into this world. And God says, or the psalmist says, Moses says in Psalm 90, you turn man back into dust, and you say, return, O children of men. Because of our sin, brothers and sisters, every one of us must die. Scripture holds out no hope. To the contrary, even though there's a couple of exceptions in Scripture. But it's our certain understanding and expectation that we will die. In Scripture it says it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So what is the hope that Scripture holds out for us? Well, it is the promise of a second life. A life after that death. And it's also the threat of an agonizing second death. That it holds, that it warns us against. Flee from it. A second life and a second death. And it's this terrible topic that must occupy our attention in the remainder of our time. In the third place, we see that these men are contrasted again now in the afterlife and with a surprising reversal of fortunes. Notice, first of all, the absolute bifurcation of these outcomes. There's only two. They are extreme. The first venue is called Abraham's Bosom, and the second is called Hades. Well, the name Abraham's Bosom is one of the Old Testament names for heaven, 
And this is where Lazarus' soul goes when he dies, awaiting the resurrection of the body at the last trumpet. This is the intermediate state, heaven. This has been helpful for me to have Doug Wilson say this very simple phrase or saying that reminds me of songs I grew up with. It says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And heaven's not my home, I'm just a passing through. (laughs) Do you know this about heaven? Heaven's physical. It's not bouncing around on clouds. It's a real world with real trees and real food and real work and real play. But it's a righteous world. It's a world of love. It's a perfect world. It's a world without the curse. When you die, that world is not here. And you don't immediately enter into it. You enter into heaven where God dwells. Or Abraham's bosom where your soul is kept for the day of salvation. It's a place where poor men like Lazarus are honored. You see that when Lazarus died, what happened? A whole company of angels come to usher him in to his prize. What honor is showed him? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones, we read in the Psalms. It's also a place of fellowship and feasting. The metaphor of bosom carries with it a double connotation of both comfortable intimacy, like with a child on its parent's lap, and, and also proximity of a guest to his host at a banquet. So it's really an image of sitting close, so close that you're like, like John, leaning up against the host of the banquet. It's a place of intimacy and feasting. It's a place also of rest. This the, rick, the wicked man, the rich man, pleads for Lazarus to be sent over just to touch a drop of cool water on his tongue. And he asks further that Lazarus have to return to earth to warn his brothers. And where's Lazarus in this discussion? Is he taking part in it? No. All the pain of dealing with the wicked is done for him. That's what Jesus is there for. Well, I've just made a jump. It says Abraham. I believe Jesus is speaking to them in ways that they can understand. He has not been fully revealed as yet as the Messiah. He's not triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. Not, and so he's speaking to them. Of, he finds the closest federal head that they know, the, the closest thing to... The, J. Abraham is called the father of all who believe. And so he refers to himself in the symbol the type of Abraham. Does that make sense to you? He calls it Abraham's bosom, but later we see John on his bosom. It's the same image. Jesus is there defending Lazarus, you know, doing his email for him, (laughs) writing the hard letters back and forth. He's entered his rest. Lastly, we must look at Hades. What's called Sheol in the Old Testament. It refers to the counterpart to the intermediate state for believers. It's not a place of comfort, though. It's a place very much like hell. And it's described in the same terms. Why does Jesus use physical things if it's an intermediate state where the soul goes and separated from the body? Well, because 
You and I have no knowledge of these things. And Jesus has to stoop to use terms that we understand. So he starts talking about tongues and fingers and, and fires. That doesn't mean it's not real. It's probably more real than you can imagine. And it will be real enough when the last day comes and he does cast both body and soul into hell. This is a place of torment. Now consider the torments of Hades that we see here. And I probably have only just scratched the surface of them. In the first place, we see that it will be agonizing there to see Jesus, see Abraham, and yet be so far away from him. Jesus will now be glorified and radiant and beautiful And to be so far from such a thing will be sorrowful. It will increase your sense of misery if you're there. It will also be agonizing to see from the place of torment the comforts experienced there by the righteous. It says in verse 23 that the man lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom. As it's, and there's, you know, understand that, look, look, look around you now. Just think of yourself now. When you see somebody else enjoying something, <laughs> what does it do if it not enhance your sense of loss? It will be agonizing because all of your appeals that you make, and yes, you will make appeals if you are there. You will plead to be released from it. All of them will be denied Denied. Denied. He cried out and said in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But he said, child, no. No. It will be agonizing also because Jesus will remind you. Jesus will remind you of the special advantage you enjoyed on earth as one of his covenant people. Do you see that he cried out, Father Abraham, and Abraham responded, child or son, to him? And that's a jab. It's a real acknowledgement of a, a real union or a covenantal union that existed on earth that was not matched with the circumcision of the heart. And so it will then eternally be a pain, a a, a torment, that you could have come so close, had such access to God on earth and not taken advantage, not grabbed a hold of his promises to you. Jesus will remind you of it, and that will cause you pain. It will be agonizing because Jesus will remind you of the vanity that you gave yourself to instead of pursuing his kingdom. In verse 25 it says, But Abraham said, Child, remember, remember, that during your life you received your good things. It will be agonizing because you will know that it is not possible to ever escape this. Jesus, Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. Nobody can cross it. It's permanent. And then, of course, there is the fire and the thirst. 
Now, it's become fashionable today to deny all of these things about hell. Many would say that this description of eternal torment is an empty threat. I mean, a real threat that, that Jesus issues that you should take seriously as a believer because it warns you to, how to avoid annihilation. It's called annihilationism. And to, to be driven, as it were, into heaven by the Lord from behind with a threat. But it's, a, it's an empty threat because these people who are called annihilationists, and this is very popular amongst, among sophisticated theologians today, they'll say, well, you know, it's, there, no souls are immortal, per se, until they're regenerate. And God bestows immortality on Christians. And they live forever. And, and everybody else just goes out like a candle. So it's like their view of it is that, that God, upon the death of the ungodly, just kind of blows them out like a candle. He certainly does not hold a candle to them. Does that make sense? That's annihilationism. John Stott has said it in print, I question whether eternal conscious torment is compatible with the biblical revelation of divine justice. Unless, he says, perhaps the impenitence of the lost, so the unrepentance of the lost, also continues throughout eternity. Because if, if it didn't, then it wouldn't be just. If they were there and ready to repent, then it just wouldn't be just for Jesus. Well, do they repent? Do we see any indication of what happens to men when they're in hell? Well, yes, we see they're sorry. They see that they would rather not be there. That is not the same thing as repentance. Look in verse 27. Consider this. The rich man says, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, send Lazarus back, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, (laughs) no. He said no to the Lord. No, that is not enough. Your gift of your word is not enough. You've got to send somebody back from the dead or they won't believe. It wasn't enough for me. And it won't be enough for my brothers either. This, you see, this is a judgment. This is a man who is shaking his fist at God. This is not a man sorry. It's a man angry. So we see that, in fact, hell is a place of permanent unrepentance. And so God, in condemning a man there, will forever be justified in it. Are you repentant? You know this wonderful song? Um, you know, I think, Eleanor, you've, you've brought it up to me a couple of times. Is Eleanor in here? Yeah. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You can't have both. You can't have both. You can have Jesus, or you can have all this world. And you have to choose. I call you, brothers and sisters, to examine your hearts, to see whether in you is the faith of Lazarus, the faith that says, Father, you give and you take away, and blessed be your name. 
the faith that is patient and endures hardships and does not curse God, the kind of faith that hears God's rebukes and thanks him for them. Can you say with all the righteous, you can have all this world but give me Jesus? Well, Jesus has offered himself to you in his word, and now he offers himself also at at his table. Look here. Look here. A feast. No crumbs. A feast. I invite you to it. Stephen is now going to give you the terms of that invitation. (laughs) But brothers and sisters, if you believe, if you love the Lord, look at it, a feast. Stephen?